listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Contrary to what Facebook would have us believe, you can only sustain so many friendships. When I preached on this text from John 15, Back in 2009, I made the observation that, according to Facebook, I had 137 friends. That number has now risen to 524, a good many of whom I've never even met. I did a little checking around on some of the numbers. I found that Larry has 439 friends. He's evidently a little bit more discriminating in his choices than me. Because they both use Facebook to get word out on their concerts and their music releases, Jaylene Johnson has 1,715 friends, and Steve Bell has surpassed the 5,000 friend marker, at which point Facebook stops counting. On the night of his arrest, when Jesus turned to his disciples and said, I do not call you servants any longer, I call you friends, I think he had something a little bit more substantial in view. Modernity in general has thinned the idea of friendship in a way that would have startled earlier ages. C.S. Lewis wrote in his 1960 book, The Four Loves, to the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world, Lewis said, in comparison, ignores it. Lewis himself knew great friendships. During his army training in 1917, he befriended another young recruit named Paddy Moore, with whom Lewis made a pact that if either of them were killed in battle, the survivor would take over responsibility for the deceased friend's family. Moore was in fact killed in action in 1918 as the First World War neared its end. And Lewis held to his promise, caring for Patty Moore's mother right through to her death in 1951. Though at the time he was not a Christian, In fact, the experience of the trenches of the First World War had confirmed the young Lewis in his atheism. I suspect that Jesus' words about friendship would have had tremendous resonance. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for a friend. Not just at the crucial moment in the trenches of war, either, But for the long haul, a pact he'd made to his friend took him 30 years to fulfill, and so be it. Now, in our day, we've become quite accustomed to expecting that marriage partners should be 
must be the greatest of friends. One currently popular wedding text reads, This day I will marry my best friend, the one I laugh with, live for, dream with, love. Such an expectation would have been all but shocking to the people of C.S. Lewis's generation. They had no such expectations of married life. It didn't have to be your best friend because it was your spouse. Frankly, I do think that we can sometimes freight our marriages terribly when we expect our spouses to fulfill every role, share every interest and dream in common, meet every need. I, for instance, I have been deeply formed by the music of John Coltrane, and I have a rather strong taste for some odd and angular jazz music. Any number of times when I'm playing the stereo, Catherine will look over at me and ask, what are we listening to? Which is code for, this is a bit too odd for me. But that's okay, because we've got lots of other music that I can put on the stereo, and I've got a friend or two with whom I can actually share that more angular stuff. I don't need Catherine to like everything I like any more than she needs me to conform to each and every one of her interests, tastes, ideas. But it took us a while, years in fact, to learn that. In his remarkable treatise on friendship, the 12th century Cistercian monk, Allred, offered some reflection on how the creation story from Genesis 2, so the sort of the second creation story that introduces the figure of Adam and Eve, how that story might inform our thinking on friendship. God said, It is not good for man to be alone. Let us make him a helper like unto himself. And then Allred continues, It was from no similar nor even from the same material that divine might formed this helpmate, but as a clearer inspiration to charity and friendship, God produced the woman from the very substance of the man. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, that when Allred uses words like helper and helpmate, and emphasizes how the story says that the woman came from the very substance of the man, this 12th century monk is about to tell us that women were created to be secondary. But listen. Listen to where that monk from almost a thousand years takes us. How beautiful it is, he writes, how beautiful it is that the second human being was taken from the side of the first so that nature might teach that human beings are equal, and that there is in human affairs neither a superior nor an inferior, a characteristic of true friendship. Hence, he continues, nature from the very beginning implanted the desire for friendship 
and charity in the heart of the human. What Allred has done is to highlight two really critical things about deep friendship. Firstly, wired into our DNA. Now, that's admittedly a phrase that the 12th century monk wouldn't have been able to make heads or tails of. So, in the very heart of our human nature, there is what he calls the desire for friendship and charity. Charity meaning caritas or love. We're built for community, Allred says. We're built for relationship and in a very particular way for friendship. Secondly, Allred insists that true friendship is characterized by there being neither a superior nor an inferior, which not only says some things about our marriages or what our marriages should be, it also brings us to the deeper meaning of what Jesus says to his disciples in this passage. They are disciples. You have to remember that. There's a very clear master and disciple kind of a relationship and dynamic at the beginning. And they've walked in a posture as his students, even his servants. But now, he says, now I claim you as my friends. And I do that because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my Father. I hold nothing back. I am sharing freely and completely all that I know, all that I am, all that I have. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, which is less a condition of being accepted and more the basic term for how he imagines life is to be lived in light of his life. It's how Jesus lived, laying down his life for his friends, quite literally. And so now it is how his friends are to live. Again, contrary to what Facebook would have us believe, we can only sustain so many friendships of that kind of depth. Yes, Absolutely, we are mandated to love one another in the context of larger community and beyond community. Yes, we are required, called, mandated to meet the least of these my people with mercy and compassion and love. Absolutely. But friendships of the committed depth that inspire you to lay down your life for the other, the sort of friendship C.S. Lewis had with Patty Moore in the trenches of the First World War, we probably are lucky if we have a handful of those over the course of our lives. Jesus, though, in turning to his disciples and claiming them as friends, has also befriended us. And everybody between us and that original company. Numbers greater than even Facebook can imagine. I used to be quite dismissive of that old hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. You know the hymn. I used to hear it as being all too sentimental. 
very 19th century piety. But in light of this gospel text, I've had to seriously reconsider that judgment on that hymn. Written by a man named Joseph Scriven in 1855, it was never actually intended to be a hymn at all. Scriven had emigrated from Ireland to Canada and was settled here when he received word back from Ireland that his mother had fallen gravely ill. The text that has become that well-known hymn were the words of comfort he wrote to his mother as she faced her own death. And so he wrote, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Scriven wrote in his second verse, who will all our sorrows share. Can we find a friend so faithful who will share the whole works of us, sorrows and all? Occasionally, yeah. Yes, we can find a friend that faithful. Or at least we should be able to do so if we've taken seriously the call to befriend one another in the way we have first been befriended by Christ. Jesus knows our every weakness, Scriven continues. And guess what? You can take even those things, the weaknesses, the stumblings, the sins, the fears, the wounds, all the stuff that we take every week in our time of confession. You can take even those to the Lord in prayer. You can, in short, tell the truth of your life to this Christ, and he will not unfriend you no matter how messy you've become. But he might just say, as all good friends should say, now get back up on your feet. Start putting one foot in front of the other. Keep making your way. You can do it. You don't have to say stay stuck in the mud. You can do it because you're not going to have to do it alone. You are counted among his friends. And as Gregory Nyssa wrote in the fourth century, we consider becoming God's friend the only thing truly worthwhile. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.